And so I bought a Python book first, right? Because, you know, I'm old. Again, I used to learning, you know, just like I did for, you know, the Apple stuff. So, you know, and I started this and then I said, you know what? There's got to be something, maybe people around or, or something. And so I looked around and sure enough, there's the Chicago Python users group. And, you know, you couldn't have asked for a nicer bunch of people. And once, you know, they have many meetings a month, you know, usually once a week on Thursdays, but the meeting I started attending was essentially what's called project night and project night was in two parts, it fit, you know, geographically speaking. So there was a big space at a, at a tech company here and, you know, one side was a big kind of open meeting area. And then on the back side of that wall was actually the lunchroom. And so, you know, they order in pizza and, you know, everybody eats and then they say, all right. You have two choices. You know, I mean, obviously, it's not like they're enforcing the rules with a, with a you know, security guard. But, I mean, basically, the whole night is based around two options. Option A is go in the lunchroom, stay on the lunchroom side after we're done eating. And you can work on your own laptop, do your own thing. And, you know, there'll be people around. And, you know, maybe you tell people what you're working on and they want to help you or you help them or, you know, vice versa. Essentially, it's kind of like just open forum, you know, for anyone who brings their computer to do whatever they want. And then the project side, hence project night, is you rate yourself, you know, then they use a little Python script to scramble everybody up into groups of four. So, you know, a 10 gets put with a one and a seven and a three. So the whole group kind of averages out. And so that way, you know, you have some people who are just learning and some people have experience. And, you know, even though they made me feel welcome from day one or from meeting one each month, I much preferred those first few months to at least go on the do-it-yourself side and continue, you know, and I had my book next to me and, you know, sure enough, people would come up and be like, oh, you know, what are you learning or why are you trying to learn? And Hello and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. This episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors is powered by Z by HP, HP's high compute, workstation grade line of products and solutions. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ian Greengross. So Ian is a friend, he's also a business partner, and finally, he's a sports agent with over 25 years of experience. He represents NFL players, football coaches, hockey coaches, and now data scientists. In this episode, we learn about how Ian uses data in his work as a sports agent, and also how even late in his career, He's been finding a lot of joy in learning Python programming. Special thanks to Nick Wan for the introduction. And I really hope that you enjoy this episode. I know I had a great time speaking with Ian. So Ian, thank you so much for coming on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Uh, obviously, we've, we've worked together now for a while. You have an incredibly interesting background as a sports agent. And you've also taken it uh, you know, on yourself to integrate data with your work as well. I think that that's in incredibly fascinating. And I'm excited to hear about, you know, the origins of that and where you're expecting it to go in the future. All right. So in terms of the origins, so um, I'm probably older than most of your uh, guests and crowd. <laughs> so uh, I got into computers probably around sixth grade, which for me would have been right around 1980, 81. Um, Apple IIe's and Apple II pluses 
were released really, you know, um, a lot of schools bought them. And so my school was fortunate enough to have an after school computers program. And, you know, while I was an athlete and still somewhat am, um, I was always very good at math science. You know, I very much had a math science brain. I am very much my father's child. And when the computers came along and, you know, they showed us, you know, what they could do. And, you know, especially, you know, programming is kind of, you know, there's back then it was kind of ordinal and, you know, you, you, you had processes and flows and, you know, it could do math and it could do all these kinds of things. And so I said, Hmm, let me try it. And, um, there were this, there were these great set of books and they, you know, cause obviously this is pre-internet, so you couldn't watch a YouTuber like Ken G and uh, learn things. So you had to, you know, do things out of a book and they were these great workbooks really geared towards teaching, you know, school age, middle school kids, how to program an Apple basic. And basically I went through them like, you know, a fish through water. I mean, it just, it seemed natural to me. I enjoyed it. It worked for me. It clicked into place. And before you know it, you know, I was really doing well at writing stuff in Apple basic. I mean, obviously we're talking about 64 K of Ram and like eight colors, but nonetheless, you know, I was, I was doing stuff. And so um, by the time I got to eighth grade, about, you know, year and a half, two years later from, from starting all of this, a um, couple things. Number one, you know, they, they allowed eighth graders to spend as much time in the computer lab as long as, you know, someone was there as we wanted. And B, um, I was able to, you know, convince my parents that this is a wonderful tool that not only can I use it, but, you know, there were word processors back then as well. And so, you know, I could write my papers on it for school. And, you know, if they had a a memo to write or something, you know, they could use it in, you know, my old dot matrix printer. And, you know, so, yes, we got an Apple IIe for our house. And that really jumped me forward. And by the end of my eighth grade year, I took it on myself to do something fun-ish. And for me, that was making a math game of all things where you were a frog and you started out at the bottom of a set of stairs. And I don't even know how I thought of this. Right. And you math problems would pop up on the screen and, you know, you had time to answer them. And as the timer counted down, you had to keep answering questions. And every time you answered a question, you'd get enough power to jump up a stair. And at the top of the stairs was a door. And, you know, your goal was to make it out the door. Because if you didn't make it out the door in time, eventually some snakes would be released. And the snakes would slither along and climb up the stairs. And eventually they would bite and poison the frog and the frog would die. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if that's brilliant or morbid for an eighth grader. But nonetheless, that was the game I wrote. It sounds par for the course for an eighth grade. So, you know, and then, you know, again, I kept, you know, as a high schooler, I still stayed, even though um, IBM started to crack the market um, with DOS PCs or MS-DOS PCs rather than Apple DOS. Um, you know, I stayed pretty much loyal with my Apple II all the way through high school. And, you know, in high school, I kept, you know, expanding my knowledge of computers. I learned Pascal, which, right, again, no one seems to even know exists anymore, but it did and I learned it. Um, and then, you know, just again, knowing how well I knew this, my junior year of high school, our high school in its eternal wisdom decided that people should become computer literate. And so they had a mandatory, um, learn computers class. It was, wasn't for a grade or anything. It was more like, we need to teach you this so you'll learn it. And so I show up the first day and, you know, I see what the curriculum is. And I said to the instructor, I said, is there a final exam for this thing? And he said, sure. He said, if you can write a program that plays craps, you're done. I said, okay. Sat down about 20 minutes later. I said, I'm done. He's like, you're done? I said, 
I'm done. Comes over and I'm like, go ahead and play. And he played it. He's like, yeah, you're done. <laughs> and that was, so, you know, I really kept, you know, and I kept, it was fun. I, I even taught it to do my, you know, and again, being a math science person, this will be no surprise to anyone. Uh, my senior year of high school, I took the two hardest math classes available in my high school. At the same time, I was the first person in the history of my high school to do it. And so, um, you know, some of it, you know, you had to do some calculus graphing and so on and so forth. And I taught my Apple because, you know, back then, you know, you didn't really think about like zero, zero as it kind of still is, is the upper corner, right? So I had to reset zero, zero to the middle of the screen in order to graph it correctly and so on. And I came to school with it and my math teacher was like, well, if you could teach the computer to do it, then you're fine. So, you know, I really kind of kept up with it. And then, you know, I got to college and I was in the school of business because the school of business is where, you know, yeah, I think there probably was a computer science major. I'm not entirely certain, but, you know, I also wanted some business side of it too, because I was fortunate given my computer experience, I had had a couple of quote unquote real summer jobs where I worked for accounting firms on their consulting side. And, you know, I, um, converted a, um, a book binders, like, you know, a company that actually bound books. I converted their sales and invoicing system, which was written in, um, IBM, you know, general basic, uh, to, uh, back then the big database programs were DBase4 and Paradox. And each of them had their own scripting language, almost like a light version of SQL in a certain sense, but directly related to the, um, databases themselves. Cause, um, they were relational databases. So you could query from one table to another rather than a flat file database. And so, you know, I had had a couple of summer jobs and I realized, you know, look, that was probably going to be my focus in life. So I was in the school of business and I was what was called back then an information sciences major. And so I, you know, again, I still kept programming. Um, you know, I wrote essentially a leads tracking system for a local pizza place where, you know, again, they could take down the phone number, enter it and start building a database because why send someone who orders a pizza a week a discount for 50%? They're already ordering. Send them a discount for 20% or maybe build even a customer loyalty thing. And I wrote that in um, Paradox, you know, and I just I kind of kept at it. And um, they made us learn COBOL, by the way. So, you know, when all the banks had to convert, I probably could have cleaned up there if I'd really paid attention. But COBOL to me was so basic compared to even what DBase4 and paradox offered as relational databases i uh, let's just say i learned cobol but if you asked me even one command right now i probably couldn't recall it whereas if you asked me to break out an apple IIe emulator i could probably rewrite the frog game in you know a couple of days so i stuck with it and then as i got to graduation you know back then all of the and it's funny cuz i do love programming but all the jobs and back then um, you really didn't do a whole lot of customer facing stuff the first couple of years. And I, in a sense, paid my dues by working those summers and a couple of them for some major firms. And I said, you know, I just don't know if this is really what I want to do. You know, I just, I think I, I may need to look at something else and, you know, and going to law school, it always kind of fascinated me. And, you know, as, as you've come to know me and your audience probably will by me going on this 10 minute diatribe, which isn't even halfway over yet. I'm not exactly a shy human being. Right. Um, so, you know, I knew that I could, you know, be a lawyer, whether it was someone, you know, a litigator or someone in the courtroom, I, you know, I'm not shy or, you know, even if it was doing business deals or maybe even computer law or something, you know, cause again, we're talking, this is 1992. So, um, 
I went to law school and funny enough, I didn't even think about, so you've mentioned I'm a sports agent and you know we're going to delve into that a little more soon, but I didn't even think about being a sports agent when I first went to law school, to tell you the truth. You know, I had played hockey. So as an undergrad, I, I mentioned maybe I went to Boston University. And so when I was there, I mentioned I was a little bit of an athlete. I was like the fifth string goalie for the varsity hockey team. Basically, my biggest contribution to the hockey team was my grade point average. But nonetheless, you know, I skated, uh, you know, every day at practice or at least, you know, for two of the four years, at least uh, I went to practice and, you know, I played with guys who, you know, are almost Hall of Famers. And, you know, some of them who scored 500 goals in the NHL and so on. But, you know, I knew my athletic career was coming to an end the moment college was coming to an end. So, again, you know, I thought about a lot of these things and, you know, here I am at law school and I go out to dinner one night at law school with a friend of mine who, you know, went somewhere else and one of his, and he's a couple of years older. And so one of his friends had come in and, you know, they've been working for a couple of years and this friend of my friends, his job was actually working for a basketball agent, helping him recruit new clients and the business is called a runner. And so, you know, as we're at dinner, I've never met him before, you know, and we're all just talking and so on. And my friend mentions how I played hockey and da 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 And we well, said, well, wait, Boston University, don't they put out a lot of pro hockey players? And I said, they do. And he said, oh, so you're in law school to represent them. And I'm like, well, I am now. So, um, you know, I kind of started thinking about, wait, this is something I could do. This is before the movie Jerry Maguire came out. So I wasn't writing the coattails of Jerry Maguire. This is before that. And so um, I looked around. Uh, I live in Chicago, here in Chicago. I looked around and there was an agent here in Chicago, you know, had been around for a little while. And, you know, he uh, he kind of liked what I had to offer in terms of being a connection to the East Coast and, you know, that I was in law school and the whole thing. And so he allowed me to start working for him. And for those um, next two years or so, I did while I was in law school, I worked for him. I would go out to Boston and, you know, try and bring in players who I knew or were around or, you know, some of the coaches who coached me had moved on to other schools as well. And so they were helpful too. And yeah, after those two years, I, you know, I had like three or four minor league guys, no one in the NHL yet, but you know, I was moving along. And then the guy who I was working for was a very successful trial attorney on top of being a sports agent. And so he um, was part of a group that I was asked to bid on being the owner's of the expansion minor league team that's now here in Chicago, the Chicago Wolves, and his group was successful in that bid. Well, there's a, I teach sports law now at my old law school from the professor who taught it to me, and this will also be mentioned in a minute, but um, there's a case in my sports law class about conflict of interest for agents, and one of them is you can't own a team in professional sports, in at least in that same industry, and represent players in that same industry. So once my mentor, you know, who I was learning the business from, um, once he bought into the minor league team, he couldn't represent players anymore. So I had to find a new job. And, you know, at that time, I was taking sports law at law school. And my professor was someone who was mostly a lawyer, but had helped out a very famous and big sports agent here in Chicago, someone who represented almost half the Bears when they won the Super Bowl when I was 15 years old. So I knew like all his clients and I knew who he was and so on. And so this law professor, you know, again, I'm not shy. I was very much a participant in class and so on. And, you know, he had come to know me a little bit. And so based on the recommendation of my sports law professor and my um, 
the hockey agent I had worked for, I got an interview with this very big football agent because he was looking for someone to add because, and again, another lucky break here, um, the salary cap had just come to football. And so, you know, it's not that he couldn't do the math himself. He's a very brilliant man. And, you know, but he was always, you know, more of a big picture guy and so on. And, you know, he wanted someone to really work more on the details of some of the stuff on the big contracts on the salary cap. And again, it was brand new and think of new and creative ways and so on. And so between my law degree and, and you know, my experience and being able to, you know, work back then, Excel, right? <laughs> well, I didn't learn Python just yet. So, you know, whip things around in Excel and so on, it, you know, it really worked out. And so I was very fortunate I got the job. And so for the first couple of years, I was helping the football agent who was, you know, this successful in football and, you know, first round draft picks and so on. And, you know, I was trying to build hockey where, you know, I'm starting from down here. And it was very tough for me to continue to recruit hockey players as clients because when I would go out and try and compete to get them, you know, I was competing against other agents who maybe even were here, but had hockey players. My only hockey players were here. And I mean, they were great guys, but I mean, in terms of the level they were playing at versus in football, you know, the guy I'm working for is, has guys like this. So I started working on football players. And after about two years, I pretty much became a full-time football agent. And so I worked for him for about seven years and then, you know, he understood and we, we remained friends until the day, you know, he passed. It's almost four years now. Um, but, you know, I started my own thing and, um, you know, for a while there, you know, slowly built it and so on and so forth. And so I've been a sports agent for football players and football coaches for 27 years. I've had hockey coaches for about the last four or five years. So now fast forward, how is all this relevant to me sitting in front of you with data? So as you know, um, or and maybe your, some of your audience don't because they're maybe not sports fans. Both foot, all the big sports here in America: football, baseball, basketball, hockey, soccer, all of them, or football, depending on where you're from, um, have all over the last, you know, to varying degrees and varying start times, but at least over the last ten years or so, very much moved into using what they call analytics or data science, really, to help evaluate everything they do to help them win games, whether it's figuring out the best time to use your timeouts in certain situations to player performance, to trying to predict, you know, who should we draft based on their performance? Because, you know, there's no standardized level that everyone's competing at, whether it's college or in hockey, whether it's Europe and, and the, you know, the Canadian leagues and the American leagues. So, I mean, there's a lot of variance there. So they started you know, very much using a lot of these things. And, you know, Twitter can be both good and bad, but the good part for me was, you know, I could see very publicly a lot of people on Twitter would publish their stuff, not from the teams directly, but, you know, people who were also much, you know, who were data scientists, people as smart as you and, you know, who have as much experience as you would very much publicly publish a lot of their stuff. And, you know, I understood it. I mean, it wasn't so much that I was at least at that moment thinking about trying to do it, which will lead into the whole Python thing in a minute. But it was very much where I was like, yeah, I know what they're talking about here. I see, you know, I get expected value or I understand, you know, this or I understand, you know, this analysis they did through regression and so on and so forth. And I'm like, hmm. So about, God, it's almost probably going on, call it a good four years now. So about four years ago, I said, all right, 
somewhere way in the back here are all those programming skills I acquired, you know, when I was starting, you know, 10, 11 years old. And, you know, the muscles haven't gone completely uh, soft, hopefully. Let me see if I can, you know, maybe find a way to do some of this myself because I'm not going to keep up with an NFL team or a hockey team. You know, they have a whole staff and they've got much, you know, a lot more money to spend on resources just to do analysis because that's what they do, right? And I mean, certainly I could spend the money, but I'm not going to. So I said, you know what, at least let me be at a point where I can maybe take some things and do some things that are relevant just to me on a much smaller scale. And so I said, all right, let's do this. And so I bought a Python book first, right? Because, you know, I'm old. Again, I used to learning, you know, just like I did for, you know, the Apple stuff. So, you know, and I started this and then I said, you know what? There's got to be something, maybe people around or, or something. And so I looked around and sure enough, there's the Chicago Python users group. And, you know, you couldn't have asked for a nicer bunch of people. And once, you know, they have many meetings a month, you know, usually once a week on Thursdays. But the meeting I started attending was essentially what's called Project Night. And Project Night was in two parts, you know, geographically speaking. So there was a big space at a, at a tech company here. And, you know, one side was a big kind of open meeting area. And then on the back side of that wall was actually the lunchroom. And so, you know, they order in pizza and, you know, everybody eats and then they say, all right. You have two choices. You know, I mean, obviously, it's not like they're enforcing the rules with a, with a you know, security guard. But, I mean, basically, the whole night is based around two options. Option A is go on the lunchroom, stay on the lunchroom side after we're done eating. And you can work on your own laptop, do your own thing. And, you know, there'll be people around. And, you know, maybe you tell people what you're working on and they want to help you or you help them or, you know, vice versa. Essentially, it's kind of like just open forum, you know, for anyone who brings their computer to do whatever they want. And then the project side, hence project night, is you rate yourself, you know, then they use a little Python script to scramble everybody up into groups of four. So, you know, a 10 gets put with a one and a seven and a three. So the whole group kind of averages out. And so that way, you know, you have some people who are just learning and some people have experience. And, you know, even though they made me feel welcome from day one or from meeting one each month, I much preferred those first few months to at least go on the do-it-yourself side and continue, you know, and I had my book next to me and, you know, sure enough, people would come up and be like, oh, you know, what are you learning or why are you trying to learn? And not that I'd give them this 19-minute spiel that I'm already up to, but I, you know, I generally told them, look, I'm a sports agent and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I have some old school Apple, you know, grew up on Apple IIe's, Apple Basic. I mean, I've got it in here, I'm so I figure I can learn Python. And they're like, oh, great you know, why don't you try this? Or, you know, why? And slowly but surely, you know, they would give me little tips here and little tips there. And, you know, so I would say those first six to eight meetings, you know, over that first six to eight months, I definitely stayed on the, you know, do it yourself side to build up something more than just print hello world. And so, you know, when, when I finally felt I was at least, you know, enough to not slow anyone down. And again, you know, they would never have said anything and they're very welcoming. But nonetheless, I, I wanted to be more than just a one. I wanted to put in at least a three, you know, by the time I, I went over to Project Night. So um, I did. So after like six or eight months, I went over to Project Night and the Project Night side. And, you know, I started putting down a three. And, you know, generally speaking, the, the same group of five or six nines and tens, you know, in Python, 
Um, generally speaking, they were the ones always to do project night because, you know, for them, it was fun, you know, to like teach someone new, but also some of the projects, you know, they were very interesting. And so, um, you know, my greatest asset as a programmer and everyone kind of does this now with Stack Overflow, but nonetheless, my greatest asset as a programmer is being able to mimic what someone else does, right? Or which we all do now through Stack Overflow. But, you know, I could watch these, you know, men and women who were tens at Python on project night and it would be do this or, you know, we would figure out that and I could watch them. And, you know, because I had at least a, the understanding of how programming works, which really hasn't changed since my Apple days in a certain sense. And because now I had at least a little bit of a layer of Python, I could follow along and say, Oh, I see what you're doing here. And then I would go home and, and of course, you know, they would send an email at the end and they would email us the script so we could see it at home, but kind of almost like my own personalized stack overflow. I could then take what we did that night and be like, all right, let me recreate it myself and maybe just put a little twist on it to see if I truly understand it. And sure enough. And so I did that for about another year. So heading into about two years of it, um, you know, by then I'd known everybody, you know, and you know, really, I mean, again, a great crowd and, you know, become friends with a couple of them. And one of them worked on a little bit of a hockey project with me just to do some stuff and so on. And so they, um, every six months, they offer what they call the mentorship program where, you know, now you really get signed with someone one-on-one, you have a project idea and they, you know, they don't write it for you, but much like project night, they're like, well, wait, you're trying to accomplish this. Did you think about this thing here that works like this and does this thing, try that, you know? And so uh, I submitted a project, which was finally going to be something relevant to what I do. I wanted to use Python to predict future, you know, a, a, a contract for a player who's been in the league for a few years. So someone who has three or four years of playing at the professional level is going to be due a new contract because their contract is coming to an end. And so therefore, based on their accumulated statistics across, you know, many, many, so features now, right? (laughs) Um, Across many features, you know, which ones are predictive and so on and so forth. And so, you know, this really begins my, my Python journey to where I am now. So, you know, first thing I had to do was, you know, amass the data, clean it and so on, which funny enough, that was something I already kind of had down from my days of, you know, doing Paradox and DBase, right? I mean, you still had to build your databases, still had to have good data. I mean, just because, you know, now we're in this much more technologically advanced stage, data is still data, right? I mean, if you have bad data, it doesn't work whether it's 1987 or, you know, 2022. So that was kind of... Before we get into the specifics of the project, I definitely want to highlight something real quick is the sort of community aspect of the Python meetup that you're describing. I think so many people, they're looking in the wrong places for mentorship. You know, they're reaching out to people on LinkedIn. They're, they're you know, they're talking to people all over the place. And those people maybe aren't in a position to be mentors. You know, maybe someone at, at uh, Meta, someone at Google, they're working really hard. They don't have time to be able to mentor in a specific way. But if you're going to meetups that have a built-in mentorship component, all of the people there who are those nines and tens in Python that you described, they're looking to be mentors. And it's a really good kind of synergistic thing for both the person who's interested in learning as well as the people who are teaching because they they are interested in doing that. I think going out and necessarily finding the person that you think is the perfect mentor for you might not be the best approach because they might not 
have the time or the specific know-how or the interest in mentoring you specifically. So I, I really liked that construct. I also really liked how you went about finding it. You're like, okay, I found this meetup. This is what we're going forward. And obviously it seems to have worked out for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, right. I mean, I'll finish that in a minute, but yeah, but here, you know what, as you said it and you spoke the words, right. You said it in a much more eloquent way than I did. In a sense, those nine and tens who are staying on project night. And again, it's not because, you know, they're staying there. Yes. The project is fun, but they also know that, right. They're going to be teaching people. I mean, like, you know, uh, funny enough, there are two guys named Ray. There's a guy named Zax. I mean, you know, all of these, they stayed on the project side. Sure. They wanted to do the project, but also because they were dying to help me. I mean, it was a great point you just made. Right. I mean, and so yes, through, through meetup. And I think, I know there's one in uh, funny enough in San Francisco, of course, because somehow I accidentally clicked on that one once. And so I still get the meetup notices for that one, but yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, right. You, someone on LinkedIn, I, I wouldn't have even thought of that to tell you the truth. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, I just, well, I think that that's I, I, again, different era. I would never think of, I mean, I reach out to people on LinkedIn all the time to get stuff done. I mean, you've come to know me. I'm not shy. And again, I'll reach out to anyone to help a client, but in the sense of like, I would never have thought like, Hey, I want to learn Python. You're the lead programmer at Meta. Come teach me Python. I just wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, exactly. I also think that there's a very neat element of the community that is open source, that's collaborative, but you have to go to the specific areas of the world or of the internet to access that. You know, someone on Stack Overflow, for example, if you ask a question, you might get absolutely flamed by people because it, maybe someone asked it before or whatever it might be. On the other hand, if you're in a more beginner focused community, you're, you're in an area where it's expected that people don't have that much knowledge, that might be a really great teaching moment or a really good question that people can expand upon. And I think so many people are just looking in the wrong places for specific resources or interacting in the wrong places for specific resources that if they just tweak that a little bit, maybe they were going to a beginner Python night or a place where there's these massive ranges of ability, they would have a lot more success rather than being discouraged by being shot down in a couple specific, not as well welcoming communities. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly for sure that, I mean, you know, look, I, I know I was extremely, you know, I've always kind of gotten that right break, whether it's the career or everything else. And I mean, I feel very fortunate that there was this kind of community here in Chicago because, yeah, I mean, would I have learned it out of the book? Maybe I'm not, I'm not saying I absolutely would have, but, you know, having that people and just like, again, seeing like, so, you know, there's the one Ray who actually, you know, I became closest to and kind of did a little bit of a hockey thing with me. You know, I mean, just again, he just sits there and he'll like, I could message him on Slack and be like, Hey, wait, how do I do this? And he'd be like, Juju. Just, I mean, and I know at the other end, he's smiling while he's typing it rather than being like, Ian, come on, buddy, you know, dear Lord, you know, he just, you, you just got that feel and it just, yeah, I mean, that encouragement definitely helped me get to, and again, I'm probably still only a five, but nonetheless, it definitely made that leap from three to five, you know, much more encouraging and certainly kept me going to make sure I made it from three to five. And so... Uh, getting back to the project then. So circling back. So I had a mentor and he was great. And, you know, again, he didn't spoon feed it to me. He made me think about it. Now, you know, certainly he pointed out things that there was no way I knew they existed in a certain sense, kind of like, you know, and your audience will appreciate this. Like you pointed out Streamlit the other day and how I've kind of started my path down Streamlit. 
I didn't know it existed because, again, I'm not really searching for Streamlit. So, um, you know, he, he would suggest, so first, you know, I, I got the data and I cleaned it. And then he's like, all right, well, what methods do you know? And I'm like, obviously, I know linear regression and a few things, but, you know, I haven't really done any, you know, big models, you know, whether, you know, from matplotlib or, you know, whether it's Seaborn or any of that stuff. I mean, you know, I've never used any of it, really. And so he's like, well, now's your time. So, you know, he said, well, you know, look, what do you know? Start with what you know. So, of course, I did some linear regression. And, you know, there's just, it, it's not linear. You know, it's, it, I mean, it's, when I tell you what it finally comes to, which, of course, will be very, you already know, which will make it very nice, tie into this whole thing in a moment. But, you know, but he said, all right, well, why don't you do some principal component analysis? And I'm like, principal component analysis? And he's like, look it up. And I said, okay, I'll look it up. And I, you know, again, and he just, he nudged me in the right direction. So I looked up principal component analysis, figured out how to do that. Okay. So now maybe these features are more important and so on and so forth. And, you know, eventually we went through, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, you know, I didn't get too far in terms of like XG boost or random forest, you know, that was a little bit above my pay grade at the time. This episode is brought to you by Z by HP, HP's high compute workstation grade line of products and solutions. Z is specifically made for high-performance data science solutions, and I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z4 Workstation. I really love that Z Workstations can come standard with Linux, and they can be configured with the data science software stack. With the software stack, you can get right to work doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show. But as it turns out, what do I do in the real world? Because I'll do the big reveal. I'll bring out, as I say in my math, in my sports law class, I'll bring out Jaws in a minute. Won't get to the third act just yet. So in the real world, when you're negotiating for a veteran player for his new contract, what do you do? Well, you compare the players who are most similar to that player, right? And you do it on a few different data points. Hmm. What does that generally sound like? It sounds like KNN. And sure enough, KNN was the most predictive in terms of the result of, you know, from the data we already had. Clearly, I've got years of data of players whose contract have expired and have gotten their new deals, some more recent than others. So we held back the most recent ones to see if it kind of kept up with the Joneses in a sense. And so, right, ran it through, did the test data, then ran through and, you know, sent it through. And sure enough, KNN was fairly predictive. And, and I'm like, of course it is. I should have thought of this right off the tip because that's exactly how you do it in the real world. My player kind of has these statistics over here and this kind of player messages over here on the graph. And yeah, you know, you sort of, and of course that's exactly what you do in the real world. I just never thought of it as KNN until I thought of it as KNN. And so, yeah, so, and then once I did that, I was kind of off and running. I mean, now I know pandas. I know, you know, all of these things. My weakest point once I was done and the world shut down was, you know, doing things, you know, that were browser ready, whether it was through, you know, Django or Flask or anything like that. I And I, and again, with the world shut down and everything else, you know, no meetings, I didn't really push myself too far on Django or Flask because, you know, at that point I was, I don't want to say self-satisfied, but I at least covered like now if I wanted to take running back statistics or, you know, even some of the more esoteric things that people are putting out there, I could now go back to Twitter, see some of these things and be like, okay, not only do I understand it, but I can take the data myself and put my own twist on it. What's important for me and my clients, because now I can do exactly what you did 
you know, and so therefore I was at the point at least then to make myself in my business. Sorry, not make my, it's, I was at the point where I could do things for my business and not have to learn Flask or Django or anything else until about three weeks ago, this wonderful guy named Ken G points out Streamlit. And now I'm like a Streamlit addict trying to build, you know, dashboards and stuff and so on and so forth. And so that well, is I'll, pretty much, sorry, I was just going to finish. That pretty much sums up my Python journey. And as long as we've mentioned the Chicago Python users group, that is the Chicago flag. And instead of stars, it's Python. All right. So if anyone is in Chicago, definitely check out that group. I don't know if they're doing live meetings uh, up and running. Again, yeah. You know but... what? The last time I checked and not to interrupt, the last time I checked, because I want to go back to the live meetings. The last time I checked was about three months ago, and I don't think they were live yet still. I haven't, I, I have been remiss a little bit these last few months. I have not checked probably in the last three months, but as of three months ago, they were not. Well, as people find out, you've been very busy the last three months. So. Yeah. Well, we're about to get to that, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, one thing I just really wanted to highlight was the quality of mentorship that you were given. Oh, it was unbelievable. I think that that's, that's a really important thing is making people work for themselves or providing feedback. A lot of people, when they hear mentorship, they're just expecting someone to tell them what to do, to give a roadmap, to, to do whatever that might be. And that's exactly how bad mentorship works. And that's exactly how mentorship shouldn't work. Mentorship should be you coming to the other person with well, well thought out ideas and bouncing them off the other person or the just as you described the other person coming to you with something that was outside of your sphere of reference and allowing you to experiment with it on your own. I mean, the streamlet example, I like I'm not your mentor in any way, shape or form, but <laughs> well, but I have the, watched the first 30 minutes of your video. I'm still stuck at 30 <laughs> minutes. But but the I think the idea that is is the exact same, though, is that I shared to you this platform that I really enjoy that I think is very useful and you took it on yourself to go and and explore that right and that's again how i believe that mentorship equation should work is that this person who i'm working with maybe i come to them and i say hey this is what i've built these are the two directions in which i'm planning to go or i'm thinking about going how would you approach it how, how do, you, do you think i could improve on that thought process and they say okay you know based on the feedback and all the work you've done this is what I would approach or this is what I would try. And then you can go ahead and implement a lot of these things on your own. I, I think that that's so important that there's no, nobody knows all the correct answers. Even these people that you describe as tens in Python, they're still with coding a variety of different ways to do the same one thing. Even with but data science, it's even more. And just giving people feedback and like iterative feedback enough to maybe unstuck them just a little bit is what I see the role of the mentor being rather than the other way around. Because if you're thinking about anyone you'd want to be your mentor, I would expect they have time commitments, right? They have things that they're doing. The way that I just described mentorship is something that is reasonable for both parties. I mean, in, in another version where they're doing everything for you, that's completely invasive on their, their own time as well. And I love just the case study that you gave there and, and how that worked for you. I think that that can work really well for other people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, in my mind, and again, I'm no expert by any means, but, you know, what we do with programming is we're solving puzzles, you know, or a fancy way of saving solving problems, right? I mean, so I didn't want him to give me the answer in that sense of the word. I mean, sure. Look, if I was 100% stuck and had no clue, then sure. I mean, you know, at least give me something to go on. 
But I mean, if he could just say, look, here's what you need to do. And I'm like, all right, I'll figure out how to do it. I mean, you know, it was much more self-satisfying to figure out how to do it myself because two parts, I did it. And then the other part is, is I learned it, right? I mean, sure, you could, again, be spoon-fed as you've well pointed out. But I think you just, you know, if you've learned it for yourself, you're just going to be that much further ahead. You know, now, here, I had a whole different thing. I was much more not in even necessarily business-related but I was, you know, working with some data and I was trying to figure out how to do something where I could iterate across a certain thing and the way it was structured. And I went to Zach's, who is, is the, Zach's is kind of the head of the Chicago Python group, him and the other Ray, not the Ray I became closest to, but I mean, I'm friendly with all of them. And so I said, you know what? I'm kind of stumped on this because this was outside of the mentorship project. This is something else entirely. And he said, the way this is structured Turn it this way. So instead of your table being, you know, this, you could do it like this. And that's all he didn't needed to tell me. I mean, he didn't need to, you know, and sure, it solved my whole problem. I mean, you know, again, I, he kind of spoon fed me the answer in a certain sense. But I mean, I was I was done. I mean, I had nowhere to go anymore. But yeah, I mean, certainly the way I learned from going to a three to a five, it was much more self-satisfying to be like, yes, PCA, I'll figure it out. And if I couldn't, then he certainly would have, you know, again, done kind of more of the Zach's thing and been like, well, here's what you're missing. Why don't you try it this way? So you, you mentioned self-satisfied. I thought that was a really interesting concept. I mean, from the time when you were a kid, it seems like you were very interested in solving problems and it's always been fun for you. And that concept has been fascinating to me. So a long time ago, I read... Thomas Jefferson's biography. And when you look back in those times, there was nothing for people to do, right? They would read a lot. They would learn a bunch of languages. It was fascinating for them. Like the most interesting things they had to do at the time were learning and reading because that was some form of stimulation. I mean, now when was the learning and reading are boring. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. When was it? I know I don't know because I mean here I do the cross but I mean we talk like here I'm certainly my father's child you know he and not to interrupt your flow on Thomas Jefferson you know he would do the crossword puzzle every morning I mean again I'm old enough for printed newspapers so you know you know and again I saw him do it and I, I do it I mean I still do the crossword now obviously I do it on a tablet but I mean you know I just still do the crossword every day and you know I mean solving puzzles I mean yes I you know, I was kind of one of my nicknames was kind of like the shell answer man, because like if I didn't know it, I love to look it up. I always wanted to have the answer. I loved solving puzzles. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's the thing is that if we look back in history, you know, learning a new language, writing 50 pages of documents, those were the puzzles of the time. Now we have all of this technology. I mean, why would a kid ever want to, you know, sit down and read a book when they can play a video game? Just the level of stimulation that we have is so much greater. You look at what, you know, when you were a kid first learning programming, that to you is comparable to a puzzle, right? That's sure. the next most fun thing when video games don't exist. And <laughs> it was in, exhilarating, right? And, and we, we've gotten to this point, I think, where we have such good options to occupy our time that the things that used to be very fun generationally, they're just boring in comparison to what we have. But that suggests to me that we can somehow convince ourselves or make any of these activities very fun if we change our mindset a little bit. I mean, that's been something for me in order to, to learn coding or learn any of these things. You know, if, if 
I'm not someone that plays video games. If I was someone that plays video games, I'd probably think coding was pretty boring, right? Or if if, yeah. if I use different parts of my brain or whatever it might be, I, I think it's it's really, um, yeah. As as I as I've grown, I just look at the the compar- comparables that we have, and I keep thinking about how could anyone be so excited about reading or something like that when they could watch it, or you know, and we we kind of creep up this chain of command. Um, how do you still keep it fun when you have such really exciting alternatives to, to coding and learning and doing whatever? Well, but here, right, so as you know, but now I'll tell the world, I have six-year-old twin boys and they love to invade my office. Cause again, being a sports agent, as you can see, there's lots of fun stuff in here. And of course there's a TV right off screen here. And, you know, so I can watch my clients, you know, whether it's football on Sundays, not so much in my office on football on Sundays, but, you know, hockey during the week or a Thursday night football game or whatever, I might be in my office. And, you know, they started invading my office. And so funny enough, you talk about video games. I did have an Intellivision set, um, which was Atari's competitor. I got that before I got my Apple II. So I did have video games before I started programming. Nevertheless, um, 8-bit games, but nonetheless, um, plugged into that TV to keep my sons occupied in case I need to do some real work and something important is a retro in television, right? And of course, they love playing video games. They, they want to play games on my phone. They want to play games on television. But when I've told them, hey, you know what? Let's do a little bit of coding. And, you know, they've gotten a little bit of this at school, but not like Python or anything. But I have. I've sat them on my lap and I said, all right, this is Python. And, you know, and obviously they're not exactly ready to, you know, write a whole streamlit dashboard. But, you know, it's funny to them when they can write, you know, uh, daddy likes poop and tell the computer to print it 10 times. They think it's hilarious. And so now they want to do more programming. And so, you know, I mean, you know, is it the same as playing video games? Of course not. I mean, let's not be silly. But I mean, you can start them at a young enough age. And even with all the technology we have, and I have started them at a young age to keep it fun where, you know, they want to tell the computer to do things. I mean, here, like, they clearly know YouTube even before you and I started working together and which again, we'll cover soon, I'm sure. But, um, you know, they knew about YouTube anyway, cause they've watched, you know, like the dinosaur videos or there's the one, Oh, that's the, the there's a, a monkey and he always does all these dinosaur videos. And anyway, I can't remember his name, you know, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, even with all that stuff, I'm like, okay, well, do you want to tell the computer how to, how to do these things? And so, it isn't so much that they're learning boring computer stuff. It's, oh, wait, they made these videos. I can tell the computer how to make these videos. Like, you know, I use the turtle function or, you know, the turtle uh, package in Python to, you know, use it to draw dinosaurs and lions for them and so on. And they're like, oh, well, we want to draw it. I'm like, okay, here's how you tell the computer to do that. So, I mean, I've, I've tried to make it for them where it's almost like playing a game, but the game is actually learning some code. That's awesome. I, I think that there's a fun element of open worldedness and and the idea that you can build anything with code that, at least for me, is what made it the most exciting, right? Is that there are these things that I'd like to do and I have no means of doing them before coding. And if I learn the skill set, I can have access to these things that I found so that I was just conceiving of before rather than being able to implement. That to me is the the most rewarding well, thing. And I, I think that that's a really important point is you can make all these things fun for yourself, even fun beyond outside stimulation or video games or whatever it is. If you attach it to things that 
that you enjoy. And that is sort of the ultimate thing is that with programming, it could be related to anything that you have interest in. Right. You know, it could be related to YouTube videos or video games or any of these things. And I, I love that concept that very clearly articulated. Yeah. I mean, so here, so talking about, so here in my quest to learn streamlit, right. Some of the first things I've done are like, you know, header size fonts and drop downs and so on and so forth. So, you know, they, they've, I said, do you want to help daddy? And so, you know, they write, you know, again, daddy likes poop. And then when I run streamlit, as you know, it looks like a website. So to them, they're like, oh, we want to, we want to do our website. You know, every day it's like, can we, can we work on our website? Can we work on our website? Cause to them, that's how they view the world. I mean, obviously they don't think of it as just a dashboard, you know, locally hosted on my computer, but to them it's, oh, we have a website, you know, and it says Ronan and Aiden love daddy or whatever, or daddy loves poop or, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, and so to them, they're excited to add in, you know, now obviously they don't understand all of the commands and everything. You know, I don't expect them to become streamlink experts before I do, but nonetheless, um, you know, again, they, it, it's, it's part of their, their learning right now. So at least hopefully it will stick with them. Now, do I expect them to become sports agents, programmers or anything else? No, if one, one of them is very creative, if he becomes an artist, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, at least in a sense, he's gotten the exposure of all these things and knows what he can do with them. And you talk about even reading. I mean, you know, every night we make sure we, you know, and I know we've strayed far away from kind of KNN, but, um, you know, even every night we make sure, you know, there's 15 minutes of reading every night before bed. You know, I mean, yeah, we are in a very much modern, you know, you know, they have my, believe me, Minecraft is on here. And if I turn my back for two minutes, they'll steal my phone and play Minecraft. No question about it. But, you know, we make sure there are all these other things going on. And, you know, and just to kind of circle it back to what we're talking about now, again, it, it, you know, any of this, anyone who's going to watch this, anyone who does any of this, it's always about like learning and solving something. And in a sense, so is Minecraft, right? I mean, to kind of, you know, bridge this gap here, playing a video game, right? I mean, whether it's Shark Shark on Intellivision, where you're this little fish and you have to eat smaller fish and keep getting bigger and bigger. Again, solving that. One of my sons, I mean, his high score is like, triple mine because all he does is play it but he's solved it in a certain sense i mean all of this in a sense is solving problems whether it's just solving a video game and how to win that solving you know how to build in minecraft and not die or you know figuring out on streamlit how to present the data i i love that and you know talking about solving problems so we met through a mutual friend nick wan so you worked on a, a hockey project with him I'm really interested into what your exposure into maybe more formal data science was like and, you know, how you were able to solve a program, I, a problem. I think you were working on it's the big data cup, I believe it is with him. And I definitely want to hear about that experience because I think it all ties everything together yeah. pretty well. All right. So, you know, I've mentioned how I followed some of these analytics people on Twitter. Um, and one of them is, um, named Ethan Douglas and Ethan covered the chiefs for a while. And I had was fortunate enough to have their starting running back when they won the super bowl. He scored two touchdowns in the super bowl ran for over a hundred yards again, named Damian Williams. And so through my representation of Damian, Ethan and I over Twitter had become friendly. And, um, every year in football for the last four going on five years, maybe there's a thing called the big data bowl. And that is the NFL releases a data set from its tracking. So in, in NFL football, players have 
trackers right here on their shoulders. So they, you know, know orientation, they know speed, they know all of that. And the ball can be tracked, excuse me, as well. And so the NFL releases a data set around a specific type of play, pass plays over 20 yards, or it was punting plays or so on and so forth. And, you know, they release it on Kaggle and there's competitions to see who can come up with the most predictive, um, you know, measurements and, and analysis based on the data set they've released. And the winners um, from the like three or four winning teams every year, a lot of them get hired to NFL teams or to companies that provide data or do analysis and so on. And so um, in hockey, they just had their second one. So we were part of the first one. So two years ago, um, Ethan, well, I guess technically 15 months ago, Ethan Douglas came to me and said, hey, uh, I know you've got some Python skills. Do you want to enter the um, Big Data Cup? Hence the Stanley Cup, Big Data Cup. So um, I said, sure. I said, but remember, my Python's about, you know, it's not here anymore. It's probably about, you know, here. And we're going to be competing against people who are here. And he said, not to worry. I'm going to add some people. So he added two people. One is a man named Sean Clement. Sean uh, is in the military, but, you know, he's allowed to work part-time outside, and he is very good at data science. He is here, and um, he works for some NFL teams on a consulting basis, so he was eligible to do the hockey data contest. And then, as you mentioned, Nick Wan. So the last person, the fourth person added to our group was Nick Wan. So two things about that. Number one, Nick, as you know, does a Twitch stream where he'll hop on Twitch pull up a Jupyter notebook and just start programming in Python, analyzing generally sports-related data because Nick does work for the Cincinnati Reds, so he doesn't do baseball data, but he's done even like League of Legends, like, you know, the Professional League of Legends or the Overwatch League, he'll analyze that, or sometimes he'll do basketball or whatever it is. And I, funny enough, had watched Nick's stream because of his relation within the sports community. I had seen him on Twitter, and I'm like, oh, let me check out his stream. And so... Um, the four of us started together on a paper for, and again, Nick is also up here on data science and Python. So the four, the three of them are tens and, or nines and tens, at least they would consider themselves. And, you know, here I am a four and a half, maybe at this point. And so, you know, we, again, it was all remote because Sean was in Florida at that point. Nick's in Cincinnati, uh, Ethan's in Kansas city and, you know, I'm in Chicago. And so you talk about, you know, what did I learn and what was my experience? You know, first we had to download the data and see what was there. And so then we had to decide, you know, what were we going to try and do with the data? And our set of data was um, women's hockey data. And so what we took from the women's hockey data was we wanted to see if we could make an all-encompassing metric to evaluate how good a player is, you know, Goals are great. Assists are great. You know, and again, the hockey analytics communities come a long way, but we wanted to see if we could make one all-encompassing metric. So in terms of and looking at the data, metric, sorry, like a similar thing would be in baseball. You have like wins above replacement and football. You have, I'm uh, not as good at football, basketball. You'd have like player efficiency rating, right. win share, something, something uh, along those lines. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we looked at it and, um, you know, we looked at the data and I said, all right, let me, you know, start doing a few things that I can do. And, you know, I mean, I'd become pretty good at plotting, you know, 
you know, iterating through and sending a, a pandas database through to plot out, you know, the rows of data. And, you know, so like I plotted out passes that lead to shots that lead to goals and so on, you know, and things to kind of see, like, are we down the right track? Whereas, you know, the rest of the conversation. So out of like an hour, that would take like five minutes and our rest of our hour zoom meetings, you know, that we would have every few days, Nick and Ethan and Sean would be like, all right, should we use random forests or XG boost? And I'd be like, yeah, this is pretty much where my knowledge ends. You know, I mean, so, you know, we kind of circle back to what I learned in a sense through the mentorship program. This was also like having in a certain sense, a mentorship program, because at least I had the domain knowledge for hockey. I could kind of see where this was going. And even if I didn't know how to do XG boost or how to do random forests or any of that other stuff, I could at least follow along and, and read their code and say, oh, I see what you did. I see what it spit out. I kind of get how this works, you know, and so on. And, you know, look, I, I didn't want to take too much of this to be Ian learns how to do what, the, you know, Nick and Sean and, and Ethan know how to do. So I, I did that more on my own. And where we had our meetings, I provided much more of the domain knowledge. I'm like, you know, are is this meshing up to what I would expect to see as just a hockey person? And then does it mesh up to what we people quote unquote agree who are the best players. So, you know, my biggest contributions, you know, again, kind of joking back to when I was in, you know, college, my GPA for the hockey team, you know, here it was my hockey, you know, instead. So instead of my GPA and, and my hockey was less here, my hockey was more and my, you know, knowledge was less, but you know, look, I certainly, you know, I, they carried me across the finish line. There's no question about that in terms of the data science portion. We would not have been an honorable mention paper if it was just me and Ethan, because, you know, Ethan wouldn't have had the time to carry me like, you know, three of them did at once. Did I contribute some stuff? Absolutely. You know, they'll admit that too, <laughs> at least, you know, if they're under oath. But, um, you know, it was much more of, for me, almost a learning experience again, but with domain knowledge. You know, kind of like it was one thing to learn very slowly, you know, over a five month period in a certain sense at my own pace for me, for myself in the mentorship program. Whereas here we had a couple months, we had a deadline, we were submitting for other people. You know, I didn't want to get in the way. And, you know, not not that they would have ever said I was, but, you know, I, I let them do their thing. And so, you know, Nick would come up with some great stuff, shoot it out and like, here's the data set. And then I would be like, all right, let me see if there's something I can make out of this. But in terms of like running it back through and, you know, do we have log loss? And I mean, and, you know, I know that doesn't really apply, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, whatever it was, they did the heavy lifting on that part. But my two biggest contributions did make it in though. So we were Nick, Ian, Sean, and Ethan, N-I-S-E. So I decided we would be team nice, nice baby. And our metric, to follow along with the vanilla ice reference, our metric was V ice. <laughs> so nice. Um, ice, I like that. Right. So nonetheless, uh, but you know, you talk about again learning by, you know, having other people just being around almost like a project night. This was a, a two-month project night, you know, with the same set of mentors in a certain sense. So once again, by taking where I, you know, and again, I was a certainly a three and a half, four, maybe even a four and a half, you know, I could watch what they did and continue to boost my learning by watching people much smarter than me. Yeah. Well, I, I love the the project concept and you said much smarter than you. It, it, I don't, I don't 
No, I obviously don't think that's true. Uh, I appreciate that. I mean, look, I'm paying them compliments in that sense. I mean, do I don't think that I'm dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, you know, in the certain in here for what we were doing, they were far ahead of what I was doing. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's an important thing to note is that you can work on a project with people that are more advanced and there are different types of value you can offer. For sure. So an example is your subject area domain, your subject area expertise within hockey. That's something that they have very, they very likely did not have as much experience. Well, they, did, with. they did not. Yeah. Another thing is time and effort, right? If I am working on a project, I'd much rather be doing the modeling, the stuff that I'm good at rather than the data cleaning. And so if you're someone who's interested in working with other people, you can say, Hey, in order to be a part of this, in order to see how you, you other people do things, I'm willing to take on some of these other tasks where you're still going to learn stuff. You still get to be part of the process. You still get to ask the other people and, and, and have them be resources to you, but you're providing value to them as well. And I, I've really liked how in your story, I, I think that you've been a mentee or you've been a part of things in exactly the right way where you're creating value. You're in the right places where other people want to help you learn. And that's, in my opinion, maybe there was some luck involved, but a lot of that is by design is that you're taking the roles where, you know, you could help and you're meeting the right people who want to help you and you become friends with them and whatever that might be. And to me, that is, that is half the battle, right? The battle is not like, oh, I have to go out and search for the right person. It's, I have to put myself in the right positions and do the right things so that these people come into my lives or these opportunities come into my lives or, or I'm finding the right things. And, and that can be done through communities. It can be done through whatever it might be. But I really like how that's transpired for you because I think it takes a, a really thoughtful approach on your side, even though it might not have been 100% completely intended every one step of the way. No, well, but here, and first of all, thank you. But second of all, you know, you're right here. As, as I constantly joke, I'm not shy, but but that always leads to stuff, right? I mean, I'm not saying to be obnoxious, right? You know, don't send that person on LinkedIn 15 requests every five minutes to be your mentor. You know, you're just going to get yourself blocked. But I mean, you know, yes, uh, you know, and part of it also is the trade-off, right? E- even representing athletes where, you know, the people bend over backwards for them and so on. I never want something for nothing for my athletes as well. You know, not to, certainly personally, right? I'm not famous. I'm not anything. I never want something for nothing but in that sense. But like, I always want the person, whether it's, you know, a car dealership giving my client a loaner car or whatever, I always want that person on the other end of the transaction. Not that these are transactions, these mentorships and so on, but in a sense, you know, they are transactions in that, in one sense, you know, I never want them to be like, man, I never want to deal with him again. In fact, the the emotion I want to strike with them is, wow, that was great. I'd do that all over again. So, you know, whether again, like, let's say it's a car dealership giving a loaner. You know, I'm like, look, I'm going to tell my client, bring a jersey, you know, and if they're not the most famous person on their team, you know, bring a, bring a second jersey from the quarterback or whatever. I'll find up from the dealership if they have a favorite player, you know, bring some footballs, give them some tickets. You know, so again, you're getting a loaner car that essentially is like $10,000 worth of value. You could spend $1,000 to, to get $10,000 worth of value. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to want to do the deal again next year. Because you've given them all this stuff, they're going to think this is the greatest thing. They're going to take a picture with you. That goes on the wall. The signed jerseys are going to go on the wall. The footballs are going to go in the case. They're going to bring it home to their kid or whatever. They're going to think it's the greatest deal ever. You know, and they loaned you a car. All they did was loan you a car. Yeah. So it's kind of the same. So so you you talk about, right, making yourself 
you didn't say it in these words, but making yourself useful, right? If you can't do the, the, you know, the data crunching or whatever, then clean the data, right? I mean, you know, there are other ways to, to be part of it. And, you know, even going back to project night when I was a three, you know, part of what they do to force you to do these things is you get to use out of the four people, you get to use two laptops, right? One is to do the actual script writing and one is to look stuff up and they make you rotate every 15 minutes so that everybody's contributing. And now it's not just me watching Ray write something, getting the email later, going home and just rewriting what Ray wrote. So, you know, again, they, they force your hand in order for you to contribute. I mean, I would have done it anyway, but you know, yes, can, Contributing takes on many forms and right. I mean, the reason Ray and Ray and Zach's are willing to help me is because again, I never made it feel like, Oh, you're only giving to me. I wanted to give back to them as much as possible. I love that. I I think that again, that sort of embodies a lot of what the broader data or Python communities are about is this collaboration, the, the giving without pure intention of having something come in return. And it usually pays itself off, you know, far more than, than two or three X. I'm I living proof that, of that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that that also leads us in, into how we got connected. So uh, I, I guess not, I haven't been very public about it, but you, myself and Tina Huang have created a, I guess it's an agency or a cohort for content creators. So how that works is that if companies come to us, we can offer sponsorship uh, opportunities to a bunch of other creators and the companies, they only have to reach out to one point of content, which point of contact, which is us. And then we can put together this consolidated campaign that frankly saves money and time on both people's parts. Uh, It also lets us to do a really good job of vetting and making sure that the sponsors that we're working with are bright for our creators and making sure that the creators do a really good job for the actual uh, sponsors themselves. But this is, in my mind, another one of these really unique opportunities where, you know, you're creating a lot of value. I mean, from the legal perspective, from a negotiation perspective, and Tina and I have this very different value creation that we have. You know, I have a really good relationship with most of the creators. Tina does as well. And she's also bringing in a lot of deal flow for us. Um, you know, can you speak about your experience of that? What, you know, what have you learned about maybe this different domain of, of not athletes, more like uh, domain specific educators and some of the things maybe that surprised you on that front? Yeah. All right. So first <clears throat> we'll tell the story of how we got together. So we talk about Nick Wan. And so, you know, obviously we submit a paper and, you know, you, you talk to someone, you know, three nights a week for an hour for over two months uh, every week, you get to know them. So, you know, me and Nick and Sean and Ethan have all stayed friends since the paper. So we submitted the paper last March. And then in August, Nick called me up and said, crazy thought. There's a company that wants to sponsor me on Twitch. Will you be my agent slash attorney? I said, of course I will. And so, you know, I look over the deal and um, let's just say because they are a manufacturer if they're giving them product, it costs them about 10 cents on the dollar. And I said, this is criminally low, as Nick recalls the conversation. I said, you need to ask for about like three times what they're giving you. And you need to get to clarify about 16 paragraphs. This thing is written like, you know, I mean, clearly their lawyer wrote it for them without any consideration for the fact of what you're going to do. And I mean, no offense to them, but, you know, they didn't 
they didn't take the time to be like, oh, well, maybe there are a few things we should throw in there. And he's like, wait, you're sure I should send him all of this? And I'm like, yes, trust me on this. Copy and paste, send him exactly this. He's like, all right. And so, you know, like two days later, he called me back. I'm like, am I fired? He said, nope, you were right. They agreed to pretty much everything. And they changed, you know, how much they're going to give me. They changed this. They changed that. I said, thank you very much. I said, look, again, you carried me across the line. I'm more than happy to do it for you. You know, and again, I'll stay friends and da 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 And then in early December of 2021, just last year, Nick calls me up and says, all right, crazy idea number two. I said, all right, shoot. And he said, I have a good friend, Ken G., and he said, Ken has this great idea of there's this whole space of educators, content create, educative, educational content creators, can't even say my own business, right? <laughs> educational content creators um, that are out there that, you know, they do all these videos and teach people Python and SQL and R and so on and data science. And he said, you know, they get offers all the time, kind of like I did. Can, you know, he wants to kind of put it together where, you know, he can help all of them. Was that something you're interested in? I said, absolutely. So then this uh, guy named Kenji, whoever he is, uh, reaches out to me about a few days later, and we have a phone call or over Zoom. And sure enough, as you know, you were an athlete. You appreciate athletics. So we bonded over a couple things. We bonded over the fact that, you know, we both love sports, and there are certain things about athletics that we both appreciate. We bonded over the fact that I at least – not just a lawyer and an agent, but as we've now well discussed, I'm a lawyer and an agent who knows this much Python. And so um, you said to me, do you really want to do this? And I said, absolutely. Because, you know, whether I'm, you know, a sports agent or whether I still play hockey myself, there's that still part of me that's close to my heart of, you know, that kid who got the Apple IIe and the bug bit him and has been there ever since. And so, um, you know, you said, let's do it. And, you know, here we are five months later. So what have I learned in those five going on six months now, I guess, really, because we started just after the first. So I've learned in those six months that it's not just people who make these videos and, oh, here's a video about R and here's a video about Python and so on. What I've learned is, is, you know, there's different strategies and different types of content creation to do these videos. There are people who are really good at doing what we now have I've learned called tutorials, right? Where they can say, all right, kind of like yours on Streamlit. We're going to take this package called Streamlit. I'm going to run you through a whole thing. And by the end of this video, you're going to be pretty good on Streamlit. And there are people who do that really, really well. And then on the flip side, there are people who don't. But there are people who then, you know, in terms of, you know, doing the things that they do where they're much more, they do demonstrations or they do integrations or they do all kinds of things. And, you know, I never, first of all, I didn't even really think about this world. I mean, again, way I grew up, I never thought of like going to YouTube and watching a video, even though I've done it for like small mechanical things, because I'm a little bit handy around the house, but I never really thought about doing it for, you know, education on data science or all the other topics that, you know, our creators cover never really thought about it, first of all, even in the first place. But, you know, now having come to learn it, I see that, you know, it's not so easy. You know, you don't just sit on the computer. You don't just say, oh, I'm going to do this project, film yourself doing it, and that's the end of it. You know, I have a great saying kind of like for my clients, but it also applies here. People, you know, only see the stakes. They have no idea how you have to slaughter the cows, right? I mean, 
There's so much that goes into making these videos. And I'm not talking about, oh, you got a sponsor and you need to include them and so on. The thought and the creativity that goes into this, it's almost like mini Hollywood productions, you know, in terms of how these creators come up with, okay, I need to say this or I need to model this or you know what? I kind of need to, you know, there's been, I don't want to say so much action shots, but there's been, it's not always just someone sitting in a computer and the level of creativity, you know, when you're talking about programming, you'd think, oh, well, these are just, you know, print, hello world, you know, load pandas into, you know, it's not boring. I mean, it's not just sit there and like, oh my God, I'm dying over here. It's, these things are well thought out, well reasoned, well-produced, well, I mean, it's just, there's so much that goes on that I never would have even thought about just, and again, it's like a mini Hollywood production. I'm not, yes, it's not exactly, you know, Sylvester Stallone blockbuster, but I mean, it's not just some guy hooked his camera up to his computer, wrote a few lines of code, put it out there in the world for everyone to learn. And so, you know, the talents of our creators across the board, whether, and again, it's not always YouTubers. I mean, we have LinkedIn people and so on, and, you know, the way they write their posts and so on, and just all of the creativity behind it. You know, it's funny, you'd think, you know, the stereotype of the computer persons, right? Some bookish person sitting at a computer, typing away and, you know, never sees sunlight. But I mean, our creators are very vibrant people who are, or, who are creative. I mean, you know, if they weren't doing program, they might be doing something that related much more to like, you know, a, a, a film or, or, or type of industry like that if they weren't doing programming. And that was, I don't want to say a surprise, but very much a revelation that I never really even thought about. So, you know, it's really two parts. It's really, you know, the creativity of our creators is just, again, something that I just never even thought about or knew of. But on top of that, just their levels in terms of who is good at what is also something that I had never really thought about. I love that. And so something interesting. Are you almost done? Is Dinner it, needs is to it? be cooked relatively soon. We have some time still. <laughs> Apparently, this is my, you know, like, warning light. Are you almost done? Yes. What's up, bud? Say hi to Mr. Ken. Hey, Kenji. What's Good to see you. All right, boys. A few more minutes, and then I will cook dinner. I promise. What time is it? It's, here, just take the phone and go. What? Here goes the Minecraft that we talked about earlier. Uh, no, this is for people to see. This one's for people to see. <laughs> We can, we can edit it if we need to, or I can leave it. No, in. Leave, absolutely leave it. In. Okay. Um, so I, I guess my last question is, you know, from working with athletes to working with content creators, what's, what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, look, as I kind of hinted at, or not hinted, but I kind of explicitly said a few minutes ago, you know, the world bends over for athletes. You know, there was a show called Arliss, which I actually is probably too old for most of you to remember in this audience, but it was a show on HBO about a sports agent. You know, and funny enough, like one of the opening like um, phrases over the opening credits was, you know, athletes are our last warriors. You know, we don't have people going to the arena and fight lions anymore, but, you know, athletes are our last warriors. And, you know, athletes are put up on a pedestal. I mean, you know, everyone wants to and I'm not everyone. Not everyone's a sports fan, but I mean, the vast majority of, Amer of Americans follow some sports. So, you know, in terms of athletes, when I call a company about an athlete, there's a lot of things that I get to do or be a part of because I represent the athletes. So in terms of behind the scenes of my representing, they have a lot more, I'm a lot more involved in their lives. I mean, this is, you know, something new where, you know, the creators aren't looking to me to, you know, okay, well, they're, and we would do this for them. Absolutely. But no one yet that we represent on the you know, creator side has said, all right, Ian, I just got a new job and I'm moving. Can you find me a car shipper? 
where that's just the most natural thing every season for my athletes because, you know, they live made their home maybe in one place and they play on a team in another place. And so I'm much more involved in the daily aspects of my athletes and coaches lives because that's the way their lives are structured. Whereas here so far, and again, we're only a few months into it. It's much more of a business part. I'm the lawyer, I'm the negotiator, I'm this. So, you know, in terms of that, my daily life for my athletes is much more involved in taking care of so many things for them. Whereas with the creators so far, the only thing I take care of them is getting them paid. But hey, that's pretty good too. Amazing stuff. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for coming. I'm glad, glad we got to meet your kids as well. Um, any final thoughts? Any Anything you want to say before we, before we ship out? No, I mean, look, here, I certainly have been very lucky in all aspects, right? Whether it was, you know, playing hockey, which led, you know, and then not taking a job out of college, which led to law school, which led to being a sports agent, which, you know, then knowing computers led. To, I mean, so my path is just one, but I mean, the, the you know, and you've talked about this and, and you know, I'll re- reiterate it again. You know, I call it not being shy. And okay, you don't necessarily have to be me. You don't have to be the you know the kind of person who walks in an elevator and has three friends by the time you get off. But by the same token, you know, and kind of what you said, it's certainly not necessarily link re- reaching out on LinkedIn, but it's looking around and seeing what opportunities exist for you, right? And there's certainly, and, and you know, if you live in a smaller town and there's not a Python users group, find something. But you know, if you don't push it for yourself, no one else is going to do it for you. That's for sure unless you have an agent, of course, then they can push it for you. But, you know, look, if you're really out there and, you know, you want to get to some place, you know, just putting yourself out. I mean, I can't tell you, and this is the the other side of the agent business, and this is a whole other podcast. But, you know, when I start out every year trying to add new clients to represent, I start with a list like this. And you know how many actually become clients at the end of that yearly cycle? You know how much I hear no Yes, I am fortunate to be successful. I do have clients. I've had clients who've won the Super Bowl and the Stanley Cup and so on. And yes, I mean, there's a roof over my head and food on my table. But nonetheless, the amount of times I've heard no, I don't think Python counts that high. But the whole point is, though, is that eventually, though, out of all these no's, there are a few yeses. And that's all it takes. So it's not so much whether or not you have access to it directly. Even if you don't, and again, I'm not saying, you know, again, let's be real. You have to also be somewhat realistic. You know, if you send a LinkedIn request to the chief programmer at Meta, you're probably not going to get a response. But if you look around and find the right places, you will find someone to continue helping you on this journey. That I do know. I love it. Thank you so much, Ian. I'm sure we'll talk like sometime next week, but it's awesome to have you in and Uh, Until next time, go get dinner with your family. (laughs) Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellaridi.